Are you caffeinated? Are you ready? I'm pretty caffeinated. I would not say I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. This Rick and Morty cup. Just your layman's coffee. I'm sorry, but I care very little about your opinion coffee. Before Justin Roy got, got canceled, I maybe and, and you're just rocking some drip standard drip, drip beans, Bornal man. I'm very fancy this week. I'm dual wielding right now, so I've got in one hand a nice homemade latte, awesome. and then I have an extra fancy hop tonic jasmine green tea. This stuff is where it's at. Yeah, it's like beer fizziness without alcohol in it, and like a green tea flavor. More than so I I'm, believe the I'm feeling good. Chugging beers before our podcast. I am a highly optimized podcast machine today. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Games Growth Update, your weekly trends, insight, and analysis of the games growth industry, researched and brought to you by Uptick. Learn how our team and technology drive millions of players to the world's best games at uptick.com. It is a big news week this week. The news was just falling from the sky this week. So this week, what are we going to cover? We have Epic winning its antitrust case against Google going on for more than three years. We have Gods Unchained, our client, a Web3 game by Immutable X, rated as adults only on the Epic store and booted from the store. We have Hasbro sadly laying off 1,100 employees, now over 20% of his workforce for the year. So we'll get into why. And then, as I think everyone heard this week, we say goodbye again, and probably for the last time, to E3 conference. So, let's get into it. Yeah, before we jump into it, one thing I just wanted to highlight, Uptick is currently looking for beta clients for our platform. We've talked about our platform a lot in the past, can do a lot of things to help you grow, especially if you have a mobile game. But if you're interested in being part of a beta program, please just send us an email, uh, marketing at uptick.com. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Games Growth Update, your weekly trends, insight, and analysis of the games growth industry, researched and brought to you by Uptick. Learn how our team and technology drive millions of players to the world's best games at uptick.com. Cool. So, lots to cover today. A couple good stories. We're winding down the season, so don't try to miss us too much. Any other thoughts, Warren, before we get started? Yeah, sometimes we have to search for stories to cover. We did not have to search this week. They were falling out of the sky, several big ones. So, excited to dig in this week. Where shall we start? Well, I think we'll start with the thing that is probably most directly impactful to ourselves and to our industry. And I will say that there's a lot of really, really good analysis out there on this, and we will try our best to, to look to the standard, but we are not lawyers. So this is maybe our, not our uh, strongest of suit. That being said, we wanted to cover the fact that the jury has handed Epic a win in the antitrust case against Google, which is huge, huge news for the industry overall. So a few details, Epic won its antitrust lawsuit against Google regarding its app store policies. The jury ruled that Google was operating an illegal monopoly, and in 2021, Epic had lost a similar antitrust case to Apple, and we can talk a little bit about why that is and why this is different in a second. In the Google case, the jury found that Google had illegally tied together the App Store and billing system with an initiative they internally called Project Hug, which is the most hilarious name for maniacal. Yeah, (laughs) hugged them with lots of money. Google allegedly paid phone companies like Samsung, as well as game developers, to use the Play Store over any competitors, including telling people like Samsung they're not allowed to put in any other stores besides the Play Store and Samsung into the default installation of the device. And this has enabled them, obviously, to extract their 30% fee on digital purchases. And the remedy for the case remains undecided. So this was surprising for me in the context of the Apple case. I think that's mostly because I'm not a very good lawyer. But to understand the difference is, like, Apple owns and operates their internal operating system as well as the phone. And so... 
it's expected that they're a closed ecosystem, right? And when you get an Apple phone, you know exactly what you're getting. Whereas in the Google case, they have a more open ecosystem. And so then what's at fault here is the tactics they're using, which are intimate monopolistic tactics, basically stifle competition in a way that Apple is not because they're vertically integrated. So like I said, not lawyers, but that's my best understanding of what I understand so far. Morin, what, what do you think? Quite a lot going on here. Yeah. So the thing I was asking Xander about before we started recording that I'm really wondering about is like, what's going to happen now? Like, what does this mean? So this has been over three years in the making and they have not decided what the actual punishment is going to be, right? Xander, that's Correct. still that's still in court. What's wild is that there was different rulings for Apple and Google. I understand some of the technical reasons why, but I'm just waiting to see what the impact is. If Google has to go through some meaningful policy change that reduces those fees in some way, and Apple doesn't, what does that mean? It sets a very strange precedent for the industry if we have like one of the two ecosystems that's held to a wildly different standard than the others. I would rather that neither of them had their rates like this high. But what do you see as like the most likely scenario that pans out from this, Xander, if you had to place bets? Yeah, so in my aggressively non-professional opinion, what seems like it's going to happen is they're basically going to mandate, there'll probably be some sort of fine, but then they're also going to mandate that they basically have to stop the anti-monopolistic behaviors, which should mean that they should allow alternative app stores, right? And they have to compete on basically on their own merit. So what that could do over time, if this works out as well as it could, is like basically someone like Samsung can make their own store or alternative third-party app stores can be easier to install and they can have lower rates, which means that basically over time that could potentially drive down the fee structure. I don't think anyone's going to mandate, hey, Google, you have to cut your fees right away. But I think that there's like basically market forces should allow rates to go down over time. I have no idea what happens with the Apple side of the equation. My guess is they're just going to basically hold the line. And I think what the really thing that's frustrating to me is like what Apple is doing is maybe like immoral and stupid and I hate it, but I don't think it's illegal in the traditional sense. That just drives me kind of nuts. So I'm trying to figure out, there are third-party stores available on Android today. So there's like Galaxy Store. You know, what is the relationship between Play Store and Galaxy Store and how would this be different in the future? Like what changes? Because there are some exceptions in third-party app stores available. Amazon App Store was another one historically. My understanding is that they're basically allowed, but what they've done is under Project Hug, they have bribed the people, other people in the ecosystem to disadvantage those third-party stores. So for example, Samsung is an explicit case called out in the case where they paid Samsung explicitly to only have the Samsung store and then the Play Store on devices installed by default. And then similarly, they paid major game developers to only publish on the Play Store or only publish on a specific set of stores. And this is what is traditionally seen as like anti-competitive is using your market, your money and your market force to constrain competition in order to drive up pricing, which is exactly what they've done. And the difference between that and Apple is that Apple doesn't have to do that because they're like completely vertically integrated, which is like ridiculous. But it's almost like Google's problem was it wasn't monopolistic enough. It's so fucking stupid. (laughs) Like if they just had built a completely closed ecosystem like Apple, they wouldn't be punished in the same way. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's wild. Yeah, I, th- I think it's right. And then the idea is like Apple had to give up market share to be vertically integrated and Google is much more broadly adopted. Yeah. And that was the play, like the other side of the coin It's like, because they were open in quotes, they've got a much larger market share. And one thing I want to call it is you should listen to Ben Thompson from Stratechery talk about this because he's way smart about this and does a really, really good breakdown. And it's going to be way more insightful than what we're saying right now. Unless you have any other thoughts, maybe you move on to the next topic. 
No, let's go from Google versus Epic to the ESRB versus our client, Immutable, and their game, Gods Unchained. So, and Epic is a guest player in this story as well. So this is an article from Decrypt that we're going to reference. Gods Unchained, which is a collectible TCG trading card game, one of the real OG Web3 games. It's been around for years at this point. Earlier this year, I think in June, it was launched on Epic Store. And this was part of kind of the first crop of more mature Web3 games becoming available on more mainstream distribution platforms. So this was something that a lot of us in the Web3 space were excited about to see like a more friendly play between these mainstream distribution platforms and Epic. Well, as of today, you cannot find Gods Unchained on the Epic Store. As of October, it was removed. And now there's public info out on why. So why was it removed? It was removed because the ESRB, which is the ratings board for video games, labeled Gods Unchained with an adults-only rating, which is wild because the description of what they usually give those games to is it's that adults-only or AO rating is granted to games that may include prolonged scenes of intense violence and or graphic sexual content and nudity. Great. So they are putting on par with that the ability to trade and sell your cards in your deck with other players. So to, I'm obviously biased as someone who's like quite bullish on Web3 Gaming, but I think this is like completely ridiculous. The justification for it was this is something that allows people to play and earn crypto assets, you know, cards that can be traded as NFTs or tokens that can be sold. But it's not like you can do this stuff you know, for better or for worse, it's several leaps to take your assets from inside some of these more mature Web3 games to like cash in your pocket. It's not like there's trading options inside the game. And even if there was, our producer Casey brought up a good note in preparation for this, which is like, you know, for some time we've been totally fine as an industry with kids being able to like use their parents' credit cards and buy unlimited amount of things. And the crime here is that you are earning through your play or buying things that you can actually resell or trade later that do not immediately have zero value. So I don't know, this is the kind of stuff that completely infuriates me uh, when it comes to like getting more mainstream adoption of Web3 Gaming. And I think it has really dumb implications for Web3 Gaming in general, because on one hand, Epic has been pretty public of like, hey, Web3 Games, you can publish here. But on the other hand, now the ESRB is saying, any games with Web3 elements with an object that you can acquire through playing is adults only. And then Epic has another policy that says, oh, if you're adults only, you cannot publish on our platform. So to restate one more time, Epic has one policy that says Web3 games are welcome here. But because now they're all categorized as adults only, it's in complete conflict with Epic's other policy that says no adults only games can be published on the platform. So Xander, what do you make of this mess? I hate this. I mean, I think it's like the ESRB, like clearly wielding its power in a say aggressive, but like just malicious and belligerent. Clearly, it's very not blunt, the, blunt object, right? Well, but also it's like they're putting their thumb on the scale in a way that they mm -hmm. shouldn't be. So, like, why does ESRB exist? The ESRB exists as an alternative to government ratings. So this game company, you opt into going to the ESRB because we don't want the government stepping in to regulate the games industry. That's smart, great, but they're acting as a government. And so now they're saying, they're like, okay, this is a standard for the government that everyone's opt into. And now that entity is using their power to put their thumb on the scale of the industry and the way that the industry developed. 
So it's freaking infuriating and it's really ridiculous. And I haven't really thought about the ESRB for the longest time because they just do a good job and you never think about it. It's like, oh, it just works. Great. And now it's like for the first time ever, you're like, okay, well, like, is ESRB the right function for this? Do we need a, like a government regulation industry? Like, is there, do we need to have an alternative rating industry? And so like, I think long-term this is actually bad for them because they're undercutting their own credibility. In the short term, it's like, who knows how long this is going to push out the adoption of the Web3 game ecosystem, which is just freaking annoying. Right. It's such a broad blanket statement of essentially any game economy where a player can own, like earn an object that they can own and trade outside of the game is equivalent to prolonged scenes of intense violence or graphic sexual content. So Immutable is appealing this. Hopefully there is some sense that can happen here and this can get reversed. But for now, pretty frustrating for those of us working on getting more of these more mature Web3 games into the hands of regular people outside of the crypto ecosystem. Yeah. Okay, rant off. Well, on to the new rant. So next up, something that's near and dear to our heart, Warren, I know at least especially your heart, is the story about Hasbro. So Hasbro is slashing nearly 20% of its workforce, 1,100 people, amid a, quote, slump in toy sales. This comes after 800 jobs were cut earlier this year. They've also sold off their movie studio, E1, for $500 million after owning it for four years at a 75% loss. Good job, Hasbro. Hasbro is, has some of the best-known IP in all like traditional toys as well as just games in general. Stuff like Magic the Gathering you might have heard of, Dungeons and Dragons, Transformers, literally like the top tier of game IP brands that exist in the world. So when I looked at this, like I don't follow Hasbro super closely with one obvious exception, which I think Warren, we'll talk about in a moment. But like clearly this is an extrapolation of a long-standing trend, which is towards the digitization of play. So this is a traditionally a physical product studio. And now over time, we've seen more and more of the play dollars going towards digital products, as you and I all should know. And so I think they're fairly mismanaged. They come from a historical background. And they're attempting to convert themselves into a digital first company. And I was going to say, good luck, because that's a really hard thing to do. So many thoughts. So first of all, I realized I gave Hasbro too much credit because I put in the notes that you're a Xander that they took a loss of 75% on this movie studio. It's actually worse than that. They bought Entertainment One or E1 Studios for $4 billion in 2019. $4 billion. And then four years later, they sold it for $500 million. So it's actually, that's like they bought a shit coin. Like they lost almost 90% of the value in less than four years. Like they should have just bought some ship token or something. But, you know, I follow Hasbro and, you know, I'm a huge magic nerd, as anyone knows, and I have had a lot of friends that worked for Wizards of the Coast over the years and for Hasbro. There's just like some wild mismanagement going on. They had a huge vision a few years back of becoming like a massive like transmedia brand. And so that's the time they invested heavily into you know things like buying a movie studio and tv studio and we've seen like you know the dungeons and dragons movie came out earlier this year that underperformed financially as have like i think most of their other film initiatives that they pursued but i think the thing that's a real tragedy in general when this many people are losing their jobs in a difficult year for the games industry but we don't have the final numbers but a ton of people lost their jobs from wizards of the coast and oh really yeah like some very prominent folks there have lost their jobs and we don't have like the full count of who's left yet. But I think the reason that that's so significant is that Wizards of the Coast, let me find the stat. It's something like they represent 22% of the revenue from the business, but over 70% of the profit for Hasbro. So Wizards of the Coast is the golden goose within the company. 
And it's like, how much more do you want from these people? I understand that sometimes businesses have to make sacrifices, you know, especially this last year. But when a division of the company is overperforming that much, just from a business standpoint, like you would think that they have a little more freedom to salvage like their key people. Some really good folks I know lost their jobs there this week. So pretty furious at this as a company where, you know, I've given it a lot of my lifetime loyalty and lifetime value to see like, yeah, to see the, the way that they've just kind of massacred their workforce, even the really high-performing divisions is really tragic. Any other thoughts yes. here, Xander? I mean, I agree. It's sad. I mean, it's obviously Wizards of the Coast is like just such a gem. Is there anything that can make you not be a magic player, Warren? <laughs> is it possible? Are you not? I mean, like, honestly, like, the game I think is that's so kinda... good. I mean, that's what Hasbro has going for them and why it's like, this is just such an epic fumble of the bag because they have such beloved IPs, like with Dungeons and Dragons, Transformers, Magic the Gathering, Play-Doh, My Little Pony. Got Peppa Pig. It, it, I don't even know what that is, but apparently it's big. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, it's easy to be armchair quarterback when it comes to what these businesses are doing. But the pattern that I've seen watching the company pretty closely is it's a lot of like quarter to quarter and year to year decisions, pulling forward future profits in order to hit like short term goals. And at some point, like you just can't keep up with that pace of growth. And I think this year that became clearer. And so they had to take really drastic action. When magic is like crushing it, right? It's like all time high digital sales, all time high physical sales. They're doing more releases than ever. They're doing the secret layer. I mean, that thing is just such a behemoth in terms of revenue. It goes to show like how mismanaged the rest of the business must be if that is getting. It is so, but they're doing, you know, they're doing a lot of things that are burning out the players. Like they're releasing content. They're trying to push both price points and frequency of releases to the breaking point with players. That's been like a big theme in the community. And they've also done things to hurt local play environments. Like they've been doing a lot more direct to consumer sales and deals directly for sales through Amazon versus their historical model of facilitating a lot of the physical sales through local game stores. And so that has a long-term negative effect. When you remove the revenue opportunity of the local game store, you remove the gathering place, you remove the thing that's like the activation point and local growth point and K-factor for your product. So that's what I mean about like pulling forward these profits. Like when they take these moves to like cut out the quote unquote middleman of local game stores and play areas, cool, that helps this quarter. And I see this like going to my local game store for every Magic pre-release and seeing less and less people every time while their revenue numbers come up because they're doing less things to support like that local ecosystem. So that's my salty Magic player rants. Hopefully someone from Watsi and Hasbro is listening. Not that I expect you to listen to me, but yeah, you guys have some of the best IP and best games in the world. And hopefully leadership can make some better decisions and more long-term thinking starting next year. Speaking of long-term thinking or lack of long-term thinking, let's go to our next topic. All right. Our next topic, another kind of goodbye for a lot of people is that E3, I feel like we've reported this story in the past, deja vu, but for real, for real, E3 has officially shut down now. So this is courtesy of VentureBeat. So the Entertainment Software Association has announced the end of the major gaming industry event, E3, Electronic Entertainment Expo. E3 has been going for over 20 years at this point. It launched in 1995. And for a lot of the, its run was considered like the flagship gaming event. Usually taking place in Los Angeles at the Los Angeles Convention Center. And really, we saw the pain start for E3 in COVID. I think that was the first time we reported on E3 being dead. 
It tried to come back. It was canceled in 2020. It came back in 2021 for a smaller online only event. And it's tried to do a full comeback for next year, but there just wasn't enough momentum and interest. So it's officially offline for the foreseeable future. Maybe we're going to see E3 come back in some other form another day, but I think that's it for now. Xander, did you ever go to E3? What are your thoughts about its role in the industry and why it's disappearing? It's a little before my time. I've never been to it, but I do remember as like a, a kid, yeah, basically like as a teenager when I would watch like stuff on the internet and you'd always see the E3 trailers. So that was like a huge beat where all the game major studios would go and they'd unveil the trailers. They'd have the giant venues and they'd be competing on booth size and stuff like that. And it seems like what's happened is basically all the major players decided, you know, instead of paying for a middleman, they just throw their own conferences. And a lot of them have, obviously they're not the same scale, but they want to control their own distribution. So we've never been an events-based marketing business. So our tactics for selling games is a little different than the E3 tactic of selling games. So I think it's sad in that it's sad to see anything go, but I don't know. I don't have any particularly strong opinions here. I think it just is what it is. Yeah. When I think about the role of E3 and where that is now, I see kind of like a bifurcated split. Like where do those big announcements come now in the industry? And it's kind of fresh in mind because we just had the game awards. So that's, I think, our largest online. I mean, it's IRL and Med, but it's not open to like the general public. So we see a lot of big announcements there. And then GDC. I think GDC has okay. really evolved and that's where we see a lot of the biggest news, the biggest announcements. It is that merger of both an industry show and a fan show that I think E3 tried to be, but it's more inclusive and indicative of where gaming is because I think E3 has always had a niche as like, this is the place for like console and PC games, whereas GDC is a more broad of this is the games industry. This is wherever the games industry is going. When there's trends around mobile, GDC has updated and reflected that. When there's trends around Web3 or VR, you go that year and GDC reflects that. But I feel like almost that E3 was stuck from a moment in time of like the glory years of console games journalism and print media and is more from that nostalgic period rather than the current state of gaming as that evolves. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a fair assumption. And I think just sort of in the context of thinking about sort of announcements, I mean, last week we covered GTA 6, how they announced their trailer. Well, they pre-announced a trailer and they just dropped the trailer on YouTube and got 110 million people in a day. I think that kind of like articulates the issue with like why a huge overhead operation works less now than it used to is because if you have fans and uh, direct-to-consumer channels, you don't need the middlemen in the way they used to. Which is a little sad because we like spending time in person, but it just is what it is. Cool. I think that's, well, that's is that the news for yeah. the week? That's it for this week. Want to take us out? I'll take us out. As usual, the news this week was brought to you by our team here at Uptick. At Uptick, we do things for games to help them grow and get more players. So that is a pretty broad scope of work. We produce creative. We run the performance marketing campaigns. If you've got a Web3 game, we do the Web3 native marketing tactics. And then we build some really awesome software that gives all the games that we work on a very unfair edge over the competition that is you know, competing for the same users. So if you're trying to grow a game and need help at any stage, there's almost certainly some way that we can help you. Feel free to reach out to us through our website. That's uptick.com. That's U-P-P-T-I-C.com. Talk soon. <laughs> <laughs>